Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Dion Pralika, the co-founder and CEO of Soul Savvy. And Soul Savvy is the exclusive sneaker community, a membership that provides you the tools and resources you need to successfully purchase the products you want from retail. In this episode, we discuss many things, of which one being the number of shoes that Dion has in his own personal collection, which is in the hundreds, how they got to tens of thousands in monthly recurring revenue, how they've grown this company off of community, and so much more. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Dion Pralika, co-founder and CEO of Soul Savvy. Dion, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes, great to have you on and uh, talk all things sneakers, <laughs> entrepreneurship, etc. And uh, with Soul Savvy, I'm curious as to how Soul Savvy got started and for people as well, a little context behind what Soul Savvy is. Yeah, for sure. So I've been in sneakers for almost a decade now. Obviously, it's a passion of mine, something I've cared about for, for a long time. And in 2018, I saw just a dramatic shift in the consumer experience around buying sneakers. Uh, Bots were really prevalent. Uh, Resale was becoming more and more popular. The rise of StockX, GOAT marketplaces was really driving resale culture. And that combined with bots was taking away from the fact that people who want to buy shoes and do this crazy thing, which is wear them on their feet, um, we're having a, we're having a very difficult time doing that. So I kind of just sat down and said, like, what can I do to fix that problem? And at the same time, while bringing the the feeling of community, you know, culture and connection back into into the space, which, you know, as you can imagine, if it's not fun to participate in a hobby or, or something that you collect that you buy that um, it's not as fun to be a part of the culture. So I wanted to bring that feeling of community back while providing our users a tool to succeed. So um, I really just set out to build exactly that, uh, a platform that allows our customers to buy product for retail and not pay any premiums for it while also engaging in community and you know, building connections with other people who have a, a similar interest as them. And hearing before the interview talk about how you're a doer, you like to just get started and get things off the ground. When you first had this idea, then what are some of those like first things you did to kind of get Soul Savvy off the ground? And like, what did this look like? Yeah. So we uh, decided on a name in like a three hour brainstorming session. There were some really, really bad ones. Oh, tell um, me, tell me, tell me. Oh, I can't even, they're so bad. I don't even remember them at this point. And, and we settled with Soul Savvy, obviously on the play of a soul, but Savvy because we wanted to at the same time um, make consumers feel smarter and, and teach them things along the way. So that's where kind of the, the savvy comes from that. And obviously we spelt it wrong because you got to spell things wrong in, in, in the modern day age. And Classic startup. Yeah, getting a domain name uh, with two Vs was difficult. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we, we came up with the name. I started designing a logo, had it in you know about a day. And then we hopped on a plane to uh, Los Angeles for NBA All-Star 2018 and started an Instagram account and pretended like we were the, the next big thing in sneakers and roamed around town, just kind of building an audience, telling our story, you know, warming people up to the idea of, you know, the industry doesn't have to be about resale. It doesn't have to be about nickel and diamond customers and charging them premiums. It can be about the culture. It can be about the people. And that's what we just did for the next, you know, eight months while we figured out what this would look like and how it would run. What were some of the things during the All-Star weekend? Like, what were you telling people about this company, about what it was, or what were you kind of asking them 
I'm curious on that experience and how that went for you guys. Yeah, it was just, uh, you know, showing them around, you know, LA and all-star. It was a big moment, obviously for the city, for, for sneaker culture, for the NBA, um, you know, rest in peace, Kobe. That was like one of the first times I've ever yeah. seen him in real life talking. Uh, we just want to give people a, a human insight into something like that, that they might not be able to attend to. I feel like a lot of social media comes from, comes from this lens of like celebrity. Um, so we took a really like hands-on on the ground approach. Like this is what we're doing. This is what we're seeing. This is what we're wearing, et cetera. And again, just kind of building that, that brand loyalty of ours, which is again, you know, we're not here to resell product. We're here to help you buy product for retail and just continuing to reinforce that while we were there. And it was really early on. We were just completely winging it for the record. Um, <laughs> but it's just, my whole life has been about instinct and feel. And sometimes I think we think too much. Um, and I like to act on things, especially that early on where you just, you know, you can't calculate everything. So that, that was my approach. You know, that first really the year of the business was just do and, and see how people respond. And to that point then, I mean, how were people responding? What were some of that feedback you were getting that obviously kept you going and made us into the company it is now? Yeah, it was amazing because, you know, it resonated with everyone to see a, a brand and obviously I have a, I have a history in the industry. So it was a little easier for me to bring attention to it through, you know, my other company that had started in sneakers. But, you know, again, like the whole industry, 2018, even now is still about like, here's a $160 shoe. No, you can't have it. I'm going to charge you $400 for it. Right. So yeah. for us to come in kind of like the Robin Hood and say, hey, we're going to help you get this for $160. And if we get it ourselves, we're not going to charge you a premium for it. So that's kind of what we did for the first five months was, you know, we took our savings, we invested 50K and we just started buying sneakers. And instead of reselling them for a profit, we were selling them for retail to, you know, acquire users on our social, build that loyalty so people could see like, this is what we were about really early on. Because for me, with the amount of, you know, networking I have in sneakers and the connections I have, like if I wanted to open a consignment store tomorrow and resell shoes, I could, and I could make a nice living for it. But that's not what I wanted to contribute to, to sneaker culture. With that too, then understanding that this is the model you're doing and you're not getting that huge markup then from selling, what was the business model behind this that you guys were, were targeting? Yeah. So subscription really, for me, it was, I felt that um, our network, our connections, our understanding of the industry and our access to product and really the tool that we were creating to help uh, users buy product directly, that we felt that was worth something. I didn't think a freemium model or a trial or anything mattered. So we immediately pitched ourselves as, as a premium service. This is what we do. This is how much we cost. If you believe in this vision, you believe in, you know, as a sneakerhead, you want to subscribe to this, you should pay for it. And that's how we kind of settled on our uh, $30 a month plan was it's a dollar a day and we're going to make your life a lot easier. Yeah. And I mean, for especially for people who are really into this I and mean, into sneaker culture, I mean, that seems like a steal in terms of like, oh, of course, because the, the markups on some of these things, and I'm not uh, huge into sneakers, but I've definitely paid attention and had friends yeah. who are much more into it. And the amount of markup is crazy. So for 30 bucks a month, it's definitely, there's a, a value add there. What were you doing after kind of that initial, you know, eight months or so of kind of just hustling and talking to people? How did the kind of customer acquisition growth side of it evolve with Soul Savvy? Um, very organic, right? So it, to me, it was just a matter of getting more eyeballs on us, uh, really just growing our Instagram following, our Twitter following, so that when we were ready to launch our... Um, actual beta 
which came in uh, September of 2018, um, I had no idea how many people <laughs> were going to sign up. Because it, it's one thing for people to um, connect with you and resonate with you, you know, through an Instagram account or a Twitter account and say, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, I support this. But it was another thing for people to actually give their $30 and subscribe to that, uh, you know, when the time came. And, you know, that that happened to us uh, September 20, 2018, like I said. And we had 500 people sign up on day one. Yeah, it was it was really awesome. We had a launch party in Toronto because, you know, we're based out of Canada. We flew to Toronto and I was like, is anyone going to show up for this thing? Um, we had 100 <laughs> people in a small art gallery who were like immediately connected with us as far as what we were building and wanted to be a part of. And those same 100 people, those same 500 people are still members to this day, two years later. So um, from then on out, I just kind of knew that that honest approach and um, kind of really caring about your customers more than anything else was what was going to help us succeed. And that's what I've focused on. That's always been my lens with every decision we've made is like, how does this affect the customer and why does it matter to them? And with that, then with you mentioned in the product side, how are you then kind of going about sourcing, deciding which products that you're going to, you're going to carry? I'm curious on that side of it because it's a huge part of it, obviously. Yeah. So that's the beautiful thing is like, you know, we've, catered everything towards helping the the customer acquire product from an authorized retailer and not leverage us right occasionally we'll sell product in our you know our store online to members but the primary goal is um, our tools help you buy it directly from someone who has in stock so we keep our hands off Uh, i like to the analogy i've been making is like we're the amazon prime of sneakers but we don't hold any inventory right you come to us you're looking for it to find it we take you there directly we expedite the whole process and you purchase it from a Nike or a Foot Locker or a boutique like Kith. With that side of things, I understand that you're working with these with these retailers and you're kind of, mm-hmm. the, uh, you just want to be the best source for like information and everything and, and help them get access to this. When you said early on, you had the savings of like the 50K you spent on this to be able to buy a product and they can buy from you. Yeah. How, how has the financing then gone since as you've evolved? Right. So we scaled back on like, actually acquiring product ourselves and holding that inventory early on we did it as a just kind of to prove to people again that we're not here to resell product right so we flipped into here's where to get it directly and you know we don't actually have to have a direct relationship with any store to facilitate that transaction for them Uh, the way our system works is you know we're tapped into almost a hundred stores worldwide so as soon as they release a product, uh, we know instantly that it's happened. We know what sizes are available. We know the pricing, a link to the product, and we can take you to checkout directly through through our system. Um, you know, think about the average user journey around buying a product that you want. You go to the homepage, you search for, or you go to new arrivals, you click into the product, you select the size, you add to cart, you go to your cart, you do some terms of service, you get the checkout. <laughs> like you've already wasted a minute of time for something that, you know, you know, is going to be gone in 15 seconds. Yeah. So, you know, the way we're set up is you get that alert. It comes instantly. Uh, you click a link, you're on the page and you're paying within two to three seconds. You combine that with Apple pay. You're done in, in under 10 seconds. So that's the kind of <laughs> advantage we give to our users. That is, that's crazy. I mean, that's, that's a huge, yeah. advantage. it actually reminds me of, uh, thinking how like even like trading or people are getting closer to a, uh and looking in terms of looking like financials uh closer to a market so they have like a, a millisecond faster so they can make a trade happen faster it's like the exact thing with this like you're just trying to get the speed so you can get access to these things faster yeah. and you have a seamless process that helps you do it 
Right, and it's it's users also don't know where to look, right? Like I mentioned to you, there's a hundred stores that that you know we're tracking and monitoring for product releases. Most people know their local boutique or the sure. big name box stores, right? So we've just opened people's eyes to a lot of different stores um, that they can purchase directly from, and then you know at the same time, I think I even undervalued um, what community means to people and how big of a part that is to our core business model and, and our growth. And to that point, to the community side of it, how have you been kind of curating that community? How have you been encouraging that, growing that, uh, anything to facilitate that? Because you mentioned it being such a big part of your company. And I agree, community is across a lot of different businesses is huge and, and really important. How mm. have you gone about that or thinking about that as you've grown? Yeah, I think... It's just really about taking the approach again, like from customer first and a human level of like, you know, when do people want to hear from you? And being honest about it, I think people just can read through bullshit. Um, it's plain <laughs> yeah. and simple, especially in this day and age. And and um, I've been always honest about my approach and straightforward when something goes bad or something is going good, right? That, ex you know, that whole spectrum of feelings, right? Because buying sneakers is not all rosy where everyone's going to get the product they want at all times. There, There's ups and downs. So... Um, for us, it's just been about setting up the community in a way that encourages dialogue, encourages people to share and encourages them to communicate with each other um, and not worry about, you know, typical social media. How many followers does this person have? Are they going to respond to me? Oh, is there any point in responding? Right. It, it yeah. A community around subscription as well. It just levels the playing field of, of who's involved. Right. It doesn't matter if you're a CEO or or just an average person who's still in school. And and with that too, there's a we behind this thing. So who is yeah. the team behind behind yeah. Soul Savvy? How'd that come together? Yeah, so it is uh, myself um, and my co-founder Justin. Uh, he was general manager and buyer for uh, six Nike locations, so he's got a lot of retail and logistical experience. And then really the team from there has just kind of grown organically for everyone we've brought on, from you know community leaders to to CTO and you know stylist. Uh, Believe it or not, in two years, uh, we've never had a developer on staff full time. Um, uh, gotta love technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's been a, you know, to some in the VC world, it's been a kind of an issue that we have not invested <laughs> in tech. But uh, I've always looked at it from the perspective of like, you know, look at what we've done, how many customers we've acquired, and what we've built without wasting a half a million dollars to prove that people want this right i've taken the, the reverse approach to it right like acquire a market understand the user and now let's build that platform for them and without having a tech side of it that in terms of the actual in-house mm. tell me for other for other entrepreneurs you know trying to build something where they need some tech help don't want to bring it in-house how have you gone about that yeah well, i mean it helped my background is in um design and i can do some php and some css so for me to spin off a wordpress site and you know design things myself was obviously um, a lot easier, but <laughs> yeah. I think it's just, it's, it's 2020. Like you should not have to start anything from scratch or spend a ton of money. Um, your V1 is a great company that was in launch with us. Um, check them out. They really can help you make an app without coding at all. Um, and that goes to, you know, services like PSD to HTML and designers, freelance designers. Like, I just think you have to be scrappy in this day and age and prove what you're trying to build works. Um, instead of, again, raising $2 million, building it, and then trying to find the, the customer. Yeah. There's so many tools. 
Yeah, I was just gonna say that. I mean, I had Christian Pavarelli from We Are No Code and literally teaching people that exact thing of how to build these different things without having to know any code. I mean, we look at you look at Webflow, you look at all these different platforms and tools out there to build pretty much anything you can imagine yeah. without having to learn code and maybe just what watching a few YouTube videos to learn it. And that's yeah, it. exactly like our our automation flow and our wait list is all run through active campaign, which yeah. I set up on like a $30 subscription, spent four <laughs> hours in it. And I set up like, you know, there was 50 different steps and a bunch of touch points. And like, it was just drag and drop, right? Obviously, it, it takes some time and you have to think about it. But so much these days is set up for you to succeed. You just have to find the tools and, and figure out how to use them properly. And especially if money is is the thing separating you from from growing something, building something, whatever, like there's no not really an excuse. Because if you don't have money, then realistically, you have time at some point. And that's what you would use then to learn these tools to be able to build things and not saying at all, it's easy, but it is very, very possible. Um, and yeah. from, especially an MVP to get yeah, validation. Definitely. I mean, you know, we're pushing... 60k MRR and we spend two thousand dollars a month on <laughs> services. That's like incredible. I had someone tell me you you need more expenses, and I was like, "What do you mean? <laughs> you want me to spend more money? No, we're we're very efficiently run and 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 it's very productive. Obviously, that helps on the fact that um, we're on a Slack free plan. If anyone yeah. from Slack is listening, please leave us alone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's just, there's so many opportunities and that's why I went with Slack. I was just like, why would I build a community and chat platform when I don't know if this will work and I can spin off a Slack for free and do everything I want yeah. um, and, and, and leverage that, right? That's, that's always been my approach. I love the scrappiness. I love it so much. And as you've grown then as well, uh, I know you went through uh, cohort 18 of launch. Mm. How is that experience, uh, even going through right now, I guess, depending on where you're at with it, how has that experience been? Why did you decide to go through that accelerator? Yeah, it, it was awesome. Um, the whole team there was really great. I'm you know, second time founder, first time raising. So point blank, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and they kind of, you know, they prepared us for it, but ultimately threw us into the fire. Um, you know, we had three or four sessions and then all of a sudden I was pitching to, you know, 15 VCs on a Thursday Zoom call um, for the first time in my life. Like, oh, uh, here we go. <laughs> was, yeah, we just went for it. And, and it's, it's a process of just like, you have to learn. You have to, you know, go through the lumps, take the hard questions, not know how to answer them and just learn throughout the process and have people around you that can help you grow and get better. And um, launch was obviously really great about that. It opened up, you know, a lot of people to Soul Savvy and to community building. And it was a really, really fun three month process. Um, obviously very hard. And, you know, the most frustrating part for me was not being able to spend time on the business. Um, I love, obviously I love to be hands-on. So to lose 20, 30 hours a week, kind of in the fundraising, uh, phase was, was tough for me. Yeah. Yeah. And p many people who don't, or haven't heard a lot from other entrepreneurs, haven't taught to many entrepreneurs, your roles as the company grows, I mean, mm. shift dramatically from the thing you kind of started doing as you launched the business, because that's what you wanted to do to like eventually managing 90% of the time. I mean, it depends on what the business is, but it does yeah. evolve over time, especially fundraising. That just takes all your time and it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. F fundraising is fun, but it also sucks. Like just straight up, because um, it's 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 a battle, right? And you have conversations with people who really get it, but 
you know, they're just not there yet for whatever reason. And um, other conversations where they just don't get it. Obviously, us being in a unique space of one sneakers, which a lot of people just discredit, but it's like, hello, it's Nady Billion Dollar Market. And yeah. uh, two, the fact that community uh, isn't something that everyone gets or appreciates. And I think a lot of that changed uh, really in the last month. I, you know, when we started fundraising in April, uh, people just looked at us sideways like, huh? Uh, but then after being cooped up in the house for four months and realizing that oh, my only actual access and connection to other people might be community online around something that I enjoy and love. I mean, it's really flipped the switch within, I think, in the VC community in the last uh, month because the conversations, the meetings I've been having since really August 1st has drastically changed compared to <laughs> April 1st. Yeah, and only a few months. And if you look at companies like Bevy, uh, a company that raised millions and millions of dollars, they were the founders of Startup Grind. Uh, they're all an online community building platform, essentially, is what, what they are. And it's during COVID, they're able to raise because of that exact point of people, VCs starting to understand this this side of community and how that plays such a big part of it. And especially, I've gone I've talked to us a, a few different times, but looking at customer acquisition and, and how that goes up with Instagram and Facebook and how expensive that's becoming, what separates you? Having a huge community behind it is a huge part of it. Yeah, and and it it just really makes you sticky. Like there's that's why our daily active user rate is ninety percent because you know if even if you're not buying something today, you're still gonna hop on our Slack and talk to other people. It might not be sneaker related, right? It could be going to the sports channel and talking about the game that's on. It could be music, food travel when we were doing that fitness stocks <laughs> yeah whatever it might be right that common touch point brings people together and then it makes it so much easier for them to uh just engage in other things and have a reason to be a part of you know in the platform and that's why we're really exploring right now to see what what this type of community around collectibles and other uh, similar interests could look like to that point, I mean, what are some of the things you're thinking about that it that it might look like that it might evolve into? Uh, I'm just curious on your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, streetwear is an obvious one because it just goes hand in hand, and it's so similar uh, as far as the, you know the customer type and how they're spending and the habits around really that whole experience and that journey. Um, but we're looking into things like, what does this look like in whiskey? Right? What What are the similarities between a whiskey collector or a wine collector? really anything we're kind of having discussion because I do I do think the future of social media and kind of commerce is you know lack of better term social commerce right and that experience yeah. of again like meeting other people with similar interests as you that's the most fun we thought the world wide web would open us up to all these wonderful uh, things and we'd meet people who are just like us but I don't think it's really done a good job of that it's yeah. There's still a, a lot of potential. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah. For that, and as you get you know more and more as it advances, there's more niche communities mm -hmm. because there are those interests, like sneakers, for instance. Uh, there are just those interests that what people have that they they gel instantly because they understand the type of people that are in whatever collectible, whatever market it, it is. You know people who are like you, so that's what you kind of want to hang out with. Um, yeah. Be online or other. Yeah, and it and it's like I have I have 400 pairs of sneakers, right? Like. <laughs> I can just, I can, I say that to most people and they look at me like I'm insane. Whereas I say that to a sneakerhead in, in Soul Savvy and they go, wow, like, <laughs> how can I get there? Right. Like, Goals. it just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, whatever that thing might be, trading cards, I mean, hell, stamps 50 years ago, I don't know, yeah. bottle caps. If you care about something that much, um, 
meeting someone who appreciates that is such a valuable human experience that you know I really enjoy kind of bridging that gap online, whether it's someone in LA and someone in Japan, right? If you like the same thing, you can become best friends. Yeah. And, and to that point, we can't just gloss over that, Dion. Uh, 400 yeah. pairs of sneakers. <laughs> how, do you, how do you decide when you want to buy a new sneaker? What is it about it that makes you decide to get one? That's a really good question. So usually it adds something unique to my, to my collection. I'm not big on all white or all black sneakers because that's just not interesting to me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, like Nike just released their Space Hippie collection. Uh, if anyone's not familiar, it's like made from a bunch of recycled parts, uh, great for the environment, ships in a recycled box, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, wow. But it's super unique. Um, I've never seen anything like it. And they released three different models. I bought all three. <laughs> I just couldn't help myself. They look different enough. And it's so cool that I wanted to add them to my collection. Um, and then sometimes it's a matter of like nostalgia, right? Yeah. You know, a shoe that you've wanted for 10 years or something that your favorite player wore or, or a celebrity. Um, there's usually, for me, there's usually an emotional tie to it. Like I remember being in Japan and seeing someone wearing a pair of Air Max 95s that like were on sale or 50% off, but like, it just looked so good. And it reminds me of Japan every time that I came home and bought them and I love them. They're like <laughs> $50 shoes that no one cares about, but they mean something to me, right? So usually a little emotional tie to it. Yeah, a little sentimental value beyond yeah. just what they are worth exactly. Yeah. And and then just another step further, 400 shoes as well. How are you deciding which ones to wear each day? I, well, look, COVID has not helped if you me wear, wear anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, going to the grocery store <laughs> lately has been my like, oh shit, I get to wear my new sneakers moment yep. of the week. Um, yeah, it's, I usually uh, dress uh, sneakers first and then figure out the rest of the outfit depending on mood and feel. Like, why do you put on a specific t-shirt? You know, you feel like wearing a blue one today and you are want to be more comfortable so you wear runners or you're not walking very much so you wear a pair of Jordan 1s because, you know, they're 35 years old. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it, you know, it just depends. It's just like anything else you decide to to wear or do. And being a part of that community and uh, you built a community, obviously, for Soul Savvy, there's others, I'm sure, as well, then. Uh, is What kind of collections have you seen from people? Is 400 uh, an average number? Is this like a, a, a yeah. lot in that world? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, we, I am, and I say we, my co-founder, Justin, is probably pushing 500. He's got a little bit more than me, um, but a little bit more Competitive. than me. Competitive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think most people hover in the range of like 50 to 100 pairs. Um, but anyone who's been collecting for a decade plus is pushing over 200, 300. So it's just a matter of how you showcase it and, or store it and all that fun stuff. And for you then, when did you kind of first first understand that you like, oh, I really like sneakers. I'm going to start collecting these. Like, When did that start for you? Um, I remember in 2000. Eight, I want to say, I believe it was 2008. There's a pair of, there's a Jordan Raging Bull pack. And I'm probably getting the year wrong, but I was just, I know I was just out of high school. I looked at them and I was like, wow, these are so cool. Um, it was kind of the first time when, you know, you're making a little bit of money for yourself. Um, your parents aren't paying for things. Um, I'm an immigrant. So my parents had no money to spend uh, on sneakers. They would have you know, smacked me upside the head. <laughs> and I remember wanting them, but I saw the price and I believe it was five or $600 for both pairs. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't, Whoa. I can't do that. That's crazy. Right. Especially at, you know, 19. Um, so it always piqued my interest around then. Um, but then around, you know, 21, 22 is when I started taking it uh, really seriously, obviously had more money spending $300 on a pair of shoes. Um, 
was more reasonable at the time. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, 12, 13 years later, I bought that same, those same Jordans from back in the day. Um, the irony was I paid resale for them and it cost me a thousand dollars. So I should have, should have just bought them back then as an investment. Yeah. Now that's just justification for your, your purchases now, Dion. Yes. You're like, well, in 10 years, I'm going to regret not buying these. So I might as well. Absolutely. Just- Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. And obviously you're not, you're not a first time founder. So with mm-hmm. Kickstarters, how did that get started? What exactly is that? Um, really kind of just like how this one started. We, I was in Chicago with a few friends. Um, we we're having drinks. We we're talking about what can we do and what can we build and what do we like. And sneakers came up as a sub, as a subject, right? And you know, in 2010, 2011, you know, social media was in its infancy. You know, blogs were kind of like starting to come up, so it wasn't too difficult to really um, put together a brand and a website and say, "This is what we're doing. This is what we're about." Start following us. Um, whereas now, it's obviously a much more crowded space. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's evolved tremendously, mm-hmm. especially when you look at companies that literally will just raise VC money and then that almost entirely goes into Facebook, Instagram ads. Yeah, yeah, it's it custom. That's why I'm so proud of what we've done is acquiring the customers first, proving that they love this model and that they're sticky enough. Like our churn this year through COVID has been 3.6% the whole year. As a company, we've never been over 5%. Um, you know, every milestone we cross, we don't go backwards. So, you know, I, it says a lot about what we've built. And, you know, when you read articles where, you know, X companies raise $2 million on a $10 million valuation and they don't have a product or any revenue, you know, like my jaw drops down. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> how and what did you say? And like, what am I saying wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you selling that I'm not? Like, yeah. You, yeah. That exactly. And it's happened a number of times, and especially it's kind of fascinating when you look at how much trust there is in someone who is not a first-time founder, Mm -hmm. but that backfires often too, where it's like, oh, they started this company, but it was in a different industry and a different space, but I'm trusting them they're going to work out. And they raise, I mean, a lot of money, like multi, multi millions from a new industry with with nothing but an idea. Yeah. And it is... It's just kind of fascinating. It does happen, but it's it's difficult clearly to to have that make that happen. But um, from your experience with Kickstarters, then how did that grow over time? Started around 2011, still kind of still around today. How did that go? How was that experience? Oh, I mean, it was it was a lot of fun, right? We were kind of the pioneer in the sneaker space in that regard as to like you know where to buy product and the links that are associated with that. It's it's an affiliate run business. Um, but you know, we just kind of took it from like, you know, to get people's attention, we gave away sneakers online. And again, that sounds like a very simple thing to do, but you know, cause everyone does that now it's kind of like corny and it's not fun and people don't enter those type of contests. But in 2011, 2012, no one was doing that. Right. And, um, you know, at the time it really worked for us and helped us grow organically. And we focused on news, um, you know, writing things that people wanted to read and bring them into kind of our, our flow. Um, and I've replicated that into, you know, soul savvy as well, because ultimately I think if you, if you touch point with your potential customers at a place that's organic for them and doesn't feel forced, uh, that's a great place to start with building that relationship, build, bringing them in your ecosystem and then organically getting them to, you know, I guess in soul savvy's case, convert into a, a subscriber, a paying subscriber. 
on that side of things, uh, how are you looking at content? Because I know you have a podcast as well. How did that mm-hmm. come about in terms of how you thought about, okay, let's think about where the content side fits into everything we're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm of the opinion, and I apologize now to everyone in sneakers. I think sneaker media sucks. I don't think it's well done. Um, you know, outside of, I should backtrack and say Complex does a great job with Complex Sneakers, their <laughs> podcast and and their there content. But I just think in general, content is tough these days because it's so focused on page views, right? And and mm-hmm. and clicks and ad revenue that it's the agenda behind what's being written. Um, it's like how many, you know, again, how many clicks can we get? How many pages can we get so we convert and make our ad sponsors happy, right? That's not a good place to start for making content, in my opinion. So the approach I took this year was just really reaching out to talented writers in the industry and saying, what do you want to write about? Don't don't think about, do I want to, um, you know, read it? Or do you think other people read it? Like, what is your passion? Because again, if you're a writer in sneakers or sports or music, you have an insight into the space that other people don't. And I want to hear from those people. I want to hear from those experts. So I just gave different writers a platform to write about really whatever they want. Obviously, we filtered that a little bit. But just having a, a feel for what's in their mind. Again, it's if one person's thinking about a passion around shopping for vintage sneakers and where to get them, I guarantee you that you know a couple thousand more people are doing the same thing. And, and again, that's how you build that organic path to bringing them into your, your, your ecosystem as a company. With bringing on those writers, I mean, can you tell us a little bit more about what you were looking for, or how you went about approaching them, maybe even filtering for which ones to to bring on? I'm just definitely something I've uh, considered with Jessica Grind stuff in terms mm-hmm. of uh, content creation and bringing on people in. And if you look at, I've interviewed Austin Reef from Morning Brew, mm-hmm. and which is a newsletter with 2 million plus subscribers at this point, and they have a, many different writers and then have different verticals as now where they build, bring writers in. How did you go about that for Soul Savvy? Yeah, so it was, I just identified people who were writing things that I liked um, in the space. You know, Alex is is actually, well, Alex is a member of Soul Savvy, um, but he also, he's written for New York Times, GQ, um, Yahoo. So I've seen his work around and um, regardless of him being a member, I would have reached out because I liked his tone and I know he's a sneakerhead, right? So it's been really yeah. about, again, just finding the right people who are interested in, in the the subject that you're trying to write about and the audience you're trying to acquire. Um, because, cause it, again, if it comes from an organic place, um, someone will resonate with it, right? Even if it's 200 yeah. people, that's 200 people who are going to read this and go, wow, I feel like this was written for me. Um, and, and that really goes a long way in my opinion. Yeah. And it, it, that brings to mind what Tim Ferriss would always say with his books where like there's different sections of it where he knows people are going to love this and some people may dislike other sections. But if you can do that where you have enough articles, enough content that people love XYZ mm-hmm. parts of them, you know, then they'll become fans regardless. I mean, it's not like they wrote every article, but they resonate with certain ones. It's like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to keep checking back yeah. for more of these as well. And it helps build that brand and community um, as well. Yeah. And it's like, if you take a an approach to writing content from a general perspective, you're just going to float in this space of like, who the hell is this for? (laughs) Where if you come at it from a perspective where like it's, you know, unique, it's telling an interesting story, almost niche for lack of a better term, it'll pierce through all the noise. It'll talk directly to the people who, you know, connect with that and it'll bring them right directly to you. Right. Um, And I think that's important. It's, you know, it's why, I mean, this is a, a, a good example but it's a bad example because someone should have done it a long time ago. Um, Anna 
she wrote a story for Complex in 2013 about the struggle of being a female sneakerhead. And seven years passed by, no one asked her to do, write a follow-up. And I was just dumbfounded by that. And I reached out to her and said, <laughs> I was like, hey, can we pay you to write the follow-up to this amazing story <laughs> that you wrote? Like, tell us what it's like to be a sneakerhead in 2020. And she wrote an amazing long-form editorial for us. Um, again, that's for us going to help us get to the female sneakerhead that we want to connect with. But um, I only say it was a bad example because it's just ridiculous that no one asked for that perspective. Yeah, like age. what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, that's insane. And the, the thing so, yeah. with that exact point, there's so many opportunities out there like like that, like that are follow-ups to whatever in, in, in the content world or providing perspective. Uh, like I find it actually with, with some of the entrepreneurs I've interviewed, I'm like, how have you not been mm -hmm. interviewed before? <laughs> or like, what's been going on? Mm -hmm. so, I mean, sometimes it's obviously their choice, but it's like, there's so many interesting stories out there that your, your target audience would want to hear. Um, and finding Absolutely. that. And for you then too, on the podcasting side, how did that come into play exactly? Um, I like talking and uh, people like listening. <laughs> what? <laughs> people like listening uh, to me talk about sneakers. No, but for real though, it was, it was kind of just attention spans are shorter these days. Right. So I wanted to balance that, that long form content with something that was more digestible, right? 20, 30 minutes, even if it was an hour or something you could listen to in the car, just another format that we could connect with people and podcasting is massive. Right. And we have a, a good network of people that we can pull in for interviews. So it was one of those things to me that just was more of a, why not? I'd be silly not to do this, um, you know, because of who our audience is and how they like to engage in content. Yeah. And the, the leverage you can get with that, cause there's no, there's no limit. I mean, obviously more and more people could just listen to it. And realistically, it's not necessarily that big of a time commitment, especially if it's like a once a week type of situation. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a relatively easy, low risk, thing to do, but has a lot of potential. So I'm shocked that more businesses aren't kind of doing that or spending the resources on it because it can give you an advantage. Again, going back to the point of customer acquisition, that channel is being so kind of filled right now uh, and yeah. expensive. It's like finding something else as a way to reach people um, and build brand yeah. is just seem like a good mix. Yeah. And podcasting is one of the most affordable mediums period for just <laughs> Uh, just plainly doing it and ha making it happen right from a cost perspective and then also just getting people to listen um, if you have any business at all around anything talk about it so people can see who you're about what you're about what the business is about it's a great way to bring them into it right first episode can just be i think our first podcast episode is like who the hell are these two guys and why do they care about <laughs> sneakers so much right so whenever anytime yeah. anyone finds that that's where they start right so they can get a feel for who i am um, as a founder, you know, what makes me tick and, and why we started the business. Yeah. And, and to go a little bit deeper under that strategy, I mean, even to that point, like the people I've had on the show, a lot of times they're there. If you do show notes as well with your podcast, this is diving a little bit in the details, but if you do show notes with your podcast, you can a lot of times rank if you do enough of them and do them well and write more in depth on the show notes, you can get those to rank for every person you have on the show. And so yeah. most of mine, if you search the people's names who come on the show, a lot of times, like just go grind podcast episode with them is like the top result or like the first page at least yeah. of Google. And then just helps build your brand more. Cause then it's like, Oh, someone finds out about Dion and like, Oh, through this thing. And then it's like, Oh, that helps the show. And then helps you. Yeah. There's just so much with podcasting that, um, people should 
try to do it with their business. Nice. So you're you're saying my uh, Google rank on page one is going to improve <laughs> drastically now because you know <laughs> it'll it'll evolve. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've never been much uh, just to, as just to have my face out there. I've always been kind of private in the regards of like you know I do my work, I run, make the business run. I I don't I'm not flashy about it in that regard. So like if you Google my name. Um, one of the first articles you'll find is I traveled with about $7,000 worth of sneakers in my suitcase for an event that we were having. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it actually got, my suitcase got opened at the airport after I checked it and someone stole all my sneakers out of it. And obviously (sighs) that got some media attention. So I hate that it's like the fifth result for my name on Google. So hopefully this (laughs) podcast can uh, kind of make its way up there. Well, let me give you an example. Like literally, so someone who I've had on the, on the show recently, uh, Annie Lim, I think her episode was like two days ago or something. It just happened to be in my mind. Mm-hmm. If you search her name, I'm on the first page of Google and only because I'm behind like a massive ink article and like LinkedIn and Twitter, Instagram. Yeah. But besides though, it's like the first result. And some of these are like literally the second result behind LinkedIn. So it's just an interesting yeah. space to be in that people I come from like an SEO content background too. So understanding that side of things can really be leveraged for your business. If you're thinking about, oh, well, should I do podcasting for my business? Like, yeah. Then if you also do the show notes, which is a little bit more work, Mm -hmm. uh, more benefit from that, from an SEO perspective as well. For sure. For sure. And then for you looking at Soul Savvy kind of moving forward here, having gone through launch Mm -hmm. and really looking at VC route potentially too, raising, what's the, what's the next step uh, for you guys with Soul Savvy? Yeah, um, we are moving forward with our plans as a company, regardless of our raise. Um, One, we're profitable. Um, Two, we're confident that we can execute on all the budgets we have. And three, if a a raise comes through, you know, that VC path, great. It'll expedite the process and help us build a little quicker, but we're just going to keep moving ahead. And for us, it's it's a couple of things. Um, one being moving away from our dependency on Slack. And while it's been great, uh, it also restricts us as far as uh, data and understanding what our users are doing and why and when, what are they clicking on? Are they looking for white sneakers or black sneakers? Or are most of our users clicking for size 11 or size eight, right? There's just so much data that we don't control or have access to. And um, you know, getting off of Slack and controlling that is going to be important. And obviously from a user perspective, right? Um, you know, if we control yeah. that process, the onboarding is simpler. So we're at a point now where we need to make that transition as a company, you know, within the next six months. Um, and then really building, um, for me, this has all been about three phases as far as the the user journey and the perspective of our customers, right? I think a lot of industries focus, or sorry, a lot of people focus in sneakers around the third phase, which is, marketplace, right? And uh, reselling our product. Whereas we are currently focusing on phase one and two. Phase one being that experience of engaging in content, interacting, talking about it, just being aware of something of a product that is about to release. Um, And then phase two being the actual transaction that happens. You know, when you acquire that good, right? That's where we've operated. That's where the subscription is. So we're building towards that third phase, right? I think the hardest part about a marketplace company is getting customers to actually use it and <laughs> care to buy and sell and, and trust you to buy and sell from you, right? So we're building towards that and, and saying, hey, here's a marketplace for our collectors, by our collectors. It is private to them. You may have the option to sell to the public, but the public sure as hell isn't going to be able to sell on our marketplace. Because again, this is for a curated type of person, a collector within um, Soul Savvy, right? And what that does is you know, it allows us to to monetize that whole journey, 
uh, for a user from start to finish, you know, the first time you see it to when you buy it and then ultimately decide you don't want it, right? I want to keep that ecosystem kind of uh, close to, to our users and have the whole experience happen through Soul Savvy and our brand. So that's what we're building towards over the next six to nine months. Yeah, and there's definitely certain advantages that come along with with that side of things. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at Apple choosing to go end-to-end solution of owning everything, uh, and there's benefits clearly that they get from having that control uh, and being curated in that way, especially when there are other options out there. Um, then to be able to, okay, yeah, this is how we're going to control the experience. We're going to make it the best for these people. Uh, there's advantages that come along with that. Yeah, and and for us, it's, it's about trust and brand loyalty, right? Um, if you believe in the business enough that Europe's subscriber for $30 a month and it's kind of community-based and through this tool, I, I believe we can do anything as long as the user tells us. And that's the beauty of, of a community, right? The feedback loop is, is so quick that I can say, hey, we're building a marketplace. This is what the profile page is going to look like. And oh, we're going to have like a digital trophy room where you can digitize cl- your collection. I can post that in Slack and get 100 comments of feedback. Like where else are you going to get that, right? And and again, controlling that and building it for your user because that's what they want from you is you know, the path to go to having a successful business instead of just guessing. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's crazy. You've done it all through Slack so far. Yeah. Yeah, I mean Slack's my vessel, right? It, I, I no, not to discredit Slack. So uh, Slack is a company, but you know we're not looking to revolutionize messaging or community with what we build, right? It's it's the core feature set is is simple. Um, whereas understanding the human mindset around community and how they want to engage that's much more difficult to figure out. And for me, it's like. Our users come to Soul Savvy not because we're on Slack. They come for everything else we've built. So replacing that that MVP, that vessel of, of Slack, um, I really look forward to. And I think it'll come with a lot of <laughs> a lot of pros. Yeah, being able to control that again, going back to the point of what you're able to do with it. Um, and then for you, as you've gone along, I'm just curious if, if there have been any uh, books in particular that have been impactful, whether it be personal, professional. I'm a big reader. I know not everyone is, but I'm just curious if there have been every, uh, any books for you. Um, I am blanking on the name, but it was, um, Pixar CEO. Um, but there's, I, I cannot creativity Inc. Yeah. Creativity Inc. That is the book. I loved reading that. Um, I think it's a great read just from a perspective of like that whole journey. Um, obviously I, I greatly enjoyed Steve Jobs's, um, book as well. And, uh, the final one is uh, shoe dog. I think Ooh. even if you are not a sneakerhead, I highly recommend reading that because, I mean, he had to go through a lot to make that company succeed. And a lot of points when they thought they were going to just go completely broke and again, making bad decisions with names and you know where to expand to and all that thing. There's just a lot to learn from the perspective of someone who's you know been very successful and um, had a happy life doing that as well. I think that's that's most important for me. It's funny you mentioned that book. That's literally the one in, in Audible. I have 24 minutes left right oh, now of it. Nice. Uh, and I've gone, this is the third time I've gone through it because it's so good. I read it, the actual physical book, and this is the second time going through Audible because it is that good. I mean, the story is that good and it's so like, inspirational, but it, it, there's so much to it. Yeah. Uh, so many ups and downs. Yeah. I prefer reading things about the people behind the company. Um, yeah. I had a conversation with uh, Andy at USV. Uh, a couple of days ago 
when we were just really just kind of chatting about community and what does that look like in that business and i said something to him and he's like oh you remind me exactly of the uh former ceo of caa um and the way you guys think and what he said in the book and i immediately turned around and bought the book on amazon because i was like if this guy thinks like me i i kind of feel like i'm alone in my thought process um so to hear that from obviously someone who i respect it was like i got to get this book in my hands right because i think that's where we as people can learn more is from that other people who have been through your path and, and their journey and less about, I mean, there's a lot of different great books, but that's, that's what really um, tugs a chord with me. Yeah. And, and that, that point exactly for me, me as well, that same type of thing. I love the biographies, autobiographies of people and, you know, hearing how they went through their journey, what they did, decisions they made, how they think. I mean, there's so much you can get out of that. Um, it, it's just so valuable. And, and yeah, when you are not working, mm-hmm. how do you recharge uh, away from work? I always ask entrepreneurs because there's mm-hmm. uh, kind of nonstop typically. I'm just curious on how you kind of recharge from work. Um, I've been very strict about my hours, first of all. I don't think you gain anything from working 20 hour days, in my opinion, um, I think you'll just burn yourself out and not make decisions strategically and with a fresh mind. So, yeah. well, I, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, I'm not saying work, you know, nine to five every single day and don't do anything else. Um, it was for me, it's like my day is eight to six thirty, right? A little longer than the typical work day, but giving myself that that space to breathe and take four or five hours off and, you know, maybe squeeze in an hour and a half on the laptop late at night is important. But in my downtown, I just like to get outside because I spend so much time inside that not being inside is refreshing, right? Go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. um, really, anything outdoors always um, helps me. And I work from home, so sometimes even just going for a drive is a nice way to relax. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, there's definitely something to being outside, especially with you know most entrepreneurs. I mean, they're working on, well, in this age at least, uh, on computers. And so you're kind of always sitting or even standing, but at a computer all day. It's like just yeah. to get outside, do anything to get outside. Like, I do the same thing. I go for a walk almost every morning. It's just made like a mile walk or something. Clear your head, listen to the, listen to Shoe Dog, um, yeah. something like that, just to get out of kind of the normal routine. And that just helps like mentally so much. It's just find it so valuable. Yeah, and I think everyone's a little bit different in that regard, but find something like again you need to disconnect don't feel like you need to work long hours to be successful you just need to work strategically right when you feel that point of like you're like oh i'm not thinking as straight i'm feeling a little tired or a little burnt out i'll just push through it it's like no straight up like take an hour off and relax do whatever the hell you want play a video game watch a movie walk the dog read a book Give yourself that break. Yeah, take a nap. Take a 15-minute nap. Like You'll come back at it drastically more refreshed. Absolutely. And Dion, where can people learn more about Soul Savvy and connect with you? Yeah, yeah. Um, SoulSavvy.com, uh, 1V, as I mentioned. Um, you can Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at Soul Savvy Inc., uh, Twitter at Soul Savvy. It's kind of really the best places to connect with us. And then as far as I go, um, I am at DP16 really on uh, all social platforms. Perfect. I'll be sure to link those up as well. The show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And Dion, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Yeah, no problem. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. 
The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.